80 years ago and two years into World War II, warplanes flew over the city of London dropping destruction. An apocalyptic scene had gripped the nation. And these scenes were not only found in London, the war was spreading like a contagion out of control. It was here, however, that a letter was sent to Clive Staples Lewis that would change the course of history. On February 7, 1941, J.W. Welch of the BBC Broadcasting Department requested C.S. Lewis to address the nation and deliver a series of lectures. Lewis agreed and set something in motion that many did not expect. Over the next three years, millions listened to Lewis on the radio as World War II raged on. Most interesting was the content of these lectures. Lewis did not turn to fluff or cheap encouragement. He turned to Christian theology as the fuel of hope. His lectures spoke of the Trinity, morality, sin, and much more. These lectures, lectures would eventually turn into Lewis's legendary work, Mere Christianity, a book translated into 36 languages and selling millions of copies around the globe. Here's the point, though. What Lewis turned to when the world was being torn apart was not easy slogans or shallow teaching. He asked the nation to turn with him to deep, rich Christian theology. As the bombs drop and the sirens sound, what would you cling to? When you are in the valley of the shadow of death, what truths do you hold on to as if your life depended upon it? Above the blare of sirens, there exists truth that is able to sustain. Christianity was built for a world of trouble. So join us as we follow in these footsteps and dive into the foundations of Christian theology and discover not stale and stagnant truth, but life-giving power able to sustain the believer in the darkest of hours. So where do we begin? Let's start with God. What exactly do we mean when we use the word God? A Christian theologian by the name of A.W. Tozer says, What comes to one's mind when they think about God is the most important thing about them. And at first that may seem like an exaggeration, but upon further reflection you get the point. I mean, what you think about God changes everything. It changes the way you behave. It changes what you think is right and wrong. It changes your views on things like marriage and family and kids. It changes what you think about your friends and your enemies and everything in between. So it's a very important question. What exactly do Christians mean when they say they believe in God? One thing that many people in our culture say is that God is love. And as a Christian, I immediately want to affirm that, but I have to pause and ask some questions like, what do you mean by that? What exactly do you mean by that? And how did you come to that conclusion? Or in other words, what steps did you take in order to come to the point that you did? And in order to do that, we have to ask a deeper question. We have to talk about the very nature of God. Now, it's important to note for today and for the rest of the series what the word nature means and how I'm using it. When I refer to something's nature, I am referring to essential characteristics and attributes of said things. So when we talk about the nature of fire, fire by nature is hot. It gives off light. So there's heat and light. And if there was no heat and there was no light, you would question if it was fire at all. Fire has essential qualities and characteristics. And if you don't see those qualities and characteristics, then you question whether or not you're, you're viewing what you think you're viewing. Now, for 2,000 years, 
Christians have said that God is triune. God exists by nature as a trinity. Now we got to stop and slow down because when we talk about the trinity, oftentimes immediate confusion rises to the surface. And I want to preface and say, you should expect that. If we are talking about the nature of God, the nature of the infinite, almighty, holy one, you should expect there to be um, some things that are difficult for finite minds to understand. So as we approach the Trinity and the nature of God, we should approach it with, with fear and trembling and an understanding that we're barely scratching the surface of this. And that's exactly what we're doing as we talk about the, the Trinity. Now, uh, it was said once that if you try to completely comprehend the Trinity, you'll lose your mind, but if you deny it, you'll lose your soul. Now, I do think that statement is exaggerated, but there is a, a sense in which you feel the sentiment is at least somewhere around the truth. It is complicated, but it also, in Christian thinking, is essential. So what do we mean when we say God exists as a trinity? The Bible is crystal clear at this next point. Again and again and again, the Bible will declare there is only one God. This is articulated in the foundational verse in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.4. And in Hebrew, it's Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. It's the foundational verse that establishes the fact that there is indeed only one God. Seems simple enough. So what's the problem? The problem is, as the scriptures unfold, we are also told that God is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so throughout the scriptures, you have these verses that talk about the oneness of God and articulating that Christianity believes in monotheism, but then you have these interesting verses that attribute God to Father, Son, and Spirit. So, for example, in addition to the God of Israel, the Father being described like that, you get passages like this from Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. It says, speaking of, of Jesus, so at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Verse 11, here's the critical part. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And likewise, you have the Spirit. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 16, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So you have one God, but that one God is Father, Son, and Spirit. When we say that God is a trinity, what exactly do we mean? What we mean is this. God is one God eternally existing as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And again, immediately, this is where we try and get our minds to wrap around it. We want to know exactly how that works. And as we said, trying to understand the infinite, the almighty God can be incredibly difficult. Our job is to observe what Scripture presents and trust the Scriptures where they lead us. You observe and then you stand on those observations. Now, we do this all the time. We observe things that are difficult to understand or things that we kind of scratch the surface with comprehending, but we don't completely get it. We just 
in every day of our life. So, for example, we know that light is light behaves as both particle and wave. It's like you, we believe that, but do you actually completely understand that? Your body, your human body, is composed of trillions and trillions of living organisms all working together to make your body. And those trillions of living organisms are not you, but they make your body. And you can actually move them around. It's incredible. So you know it, but you don't completely understand it. You couldn't even begin to fathom it. You couldn't even scratch the surface. Or for, say, gravity. You believe in gravity because you observe it. But do you completely understand the law of gravity? You may not completely understand it, but when you're standing on the edge of the cliff, you certainly feel its power. So what we want to do is faithfully observe what the Scripture presents, even if we don't completely comprehend it, which we should expect our brains fall sh falling short to do. Now, there are some uh, analogies that people use and, and metaphors and images that are used to help people sort of get their minds around the Trinity. And they can be helpful for some people. So one of the first analogies that is used to describe the Trinity is H2O. And you know water, okay, H2O, but water, H2O, can exist in three states. You can freeze it, and it's a solid. In liquid form, we know it as water, but then there's also steam. And so some people say water, H2O, is similar to the, the Trinity, where there's one thing by nature, but it has these three states. One of the other examples that people use is that of the sun. And so some would say the sun is, is one thing. There's one it, but the sun also by nature gives off light and heat. And so there's a way to understand sort of this oneness and threeness. Another example people use is that of a shamrock or a clover. There's one clover, but there exists those three components of the clover. So one in three again. And lastly, one thing that some people use is that of an egg. An egg is one object, one thing, but what exists in the egg? The egg has a shell, it has the white, and it has the yolk. So again, one egg, three components, three distinct things within the egg. Now, at this point, many people have problems with the illustrations, and rightfully so, because none of these illustrations can be perfectly mapped upon Almighty, Infinite God. They all sort of break down in one way or another. So, for instance, yes, H2O, there's three states, but that H2O isn't existing in all of those three states simultaneously for all eternity. God is always Father, Son, and Spirit. He doesn't change states to be Father and then Son and then Spirit. He is eternally existing as Father, Son, and Spirit. Or the egg, the opposite kind of thing is the egg is one egg, but you can actually separate the shell from the white and the yolk, and those three objects can exist independently of the other pieces of the egg. And God, the nature of God, the Trinity, can't be broken into three pieces. 
And so many people will have gripes with the illustrations. And what you need to know is that the illustrations break down at some point, as all illustrations do. You can't expect a metaphor or an illustration of an egg to be completely, perfectly mapped out upon Almighty God. But where I think they are helpful is that they get our minds to start thinking in categories of one and threeness, in um, plurality and unity. And so when we approach God, again, we affirm there is one God eternally existing as Father, Son, and Spirit. And this brings us all the way back to where we were starting off with the issue about God being love. But before we could ask that question and get to its answer, we have to ask another incredibly important question, and that is, why did this triune God create anything to begin with? So let's do a quick thought exercise. Put yourself in the shoes of God just for a moment. Why would you, with divine, infinite knowledge, lacking nothing, sufficient in yourself, why would you ever create? Or put it another way, why would you ever create anything that is not you? You are perfect and you lack nothing. So why did God create us to begin with? In the Enuma Elish, a Babylonian creation account, the, the story tells of, of the gods creating because they needed human slaves to do the work that they didn't want to do. In other monotheistic frameworks, God is alone and isolated, not in a trinity. There's no plurality there. For Aristotle, God had to always eternally create something alongside of him so there was something good for him to be good to. But this is where the doctrine of the Trinity offers something completely unique to the world. See, within the very nature of God, there has always eternally existed Father, Son, and Spirit. And in that, the Father has always loved the Son. The Son has always loved the Father. And the Father, has al Father and Son have always loved the Spirit, and the Spirit to the Father and the Son. This has exi existed for all eternity. There was never a moment in the past where there was not love within the very nature of God. And so, this love that God has of the Father, Son, and Spirit becomes the very blueprint of creation. It's like you pic picture a cup and the love that the Father has for the Son fills the cup, but then it overflows. God creates. He sees fit to bless a universe that is created to receive love and experience a similar love that He Himself has always experienced within His very nature as Father, Son, and Spirit. In John 17, 24, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may, with, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. An early American pastor and theologian by the name of Jonathan Edwards says it like this, and this is, this is deep, so we'll go slow. God's aim in creating the world was himself, but because this God's very self is so different from that of any others, that means something utterly different from what it would mean with other gods. 
This God's very self is found in giving, not taking. This God is like a fountain of goodness. So seeking himself means seeking himself diffused and expressed. In other words, he is seeking to have himself, his life, and his goodness shared. His very nature is about going out and sharing of his own fullness. Pretty heavy. But here's the the idea. God is going to bring glory to himself, but because his nature is pointed towards love, he will glorify himself by sharing of his goodness to the world he created. God has always existed as Father, Son, and Spirit. Love is not a foreign concept or exercise. Love has always been shared for all eternity. And all of this brings us back to where we first started with the statement, God is love. God is love, but not for the reasons you might expect. The Christian believes God is love first and foremost because God is a trinity. He has always in his own nature existed in loving relationship. And that's really, really, really good news because it means that God's love is dependent upon his own nature and his nature is unchanging. God's love is not contingent or dependent upon your lovability. And I know sometimes in, in, in our culture, in our world, we say things like God is love and we might assume it's because we're, we're so lovable, we're so good, we're such cute people, of course God loves us. The issue though is when you have the courage to honestly reflect on yourself and you begin to examine the greed and selfishness, and you know all the things that have have been done to you and the things that you've done to others, you can be overwhelmed with feelings and doubts and insecurities, and you can have moments or minutes or days or even possibly years where you begin to doubt God's love for you. But that's with an understanding that makes God's love contingent and dependent upon you. What the Trinity says is that God's love is not contingent upon you. God loves you precisely because who He is. He has always been a loving God. And that is really, really, really good news. And that's also really good news for the times we are living in. Even though our world might be in chaos, even though it might seem like there's very little love in the world, it may seem like there's nothing but division and anger. At the center of all reality, There is a being who eternally expresses pure, undefiled, unadulterated love. Before the cosmos was spoken into existence, he was a loving God. So when the world fills void of love, above the blare of sirens exists this truth. God is triune. Because God is triune, God is love. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you also know this truth. God loves you. So whatever may be going on in the world, whatever chaos there may be, whatever noise is going on above that, you can take this to the bank. God is love because God is triune and his love is here for you today. Now, one last question. How do we know that this triune God does indeed love us? And the answer to that question is one that is remarkable and fascinating. Because we begin to see and fathom the magnitude of God's love for us in our rejection of Him. 1 John 4, 8-10 says this, God is love. 
in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God, the Son Himself, came to our world to die the slave's death. And in that, in God the Son putting on human flesh to die on our behalf, we not only get to see that God loves us, but we see the magnitude of that love. That's why it's the greatest story ever told. The king himself would come to die the slave's death on our behalf. The king would die to make peasants like us royalty. We were spiritually poor and naked, but he clothes us with righteousness. It is the greatest story ever told. So when the world is chaos, we cling to these truths above the blare of sirens. We hold fast. God is triune. God is love and he loves us. Now, how ought we reflect that into the world? We are his followers. So we do his will on earth as it is in heaven. So our mission is to reflect his goodness and his love into this broken world. We are to do his will on earth as it is in heaven. God is love. God is triune. And we put that back into the world as his image bearers.